on this computer. All right, so we are live. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. This is Michael Vandervoort, and uh, sitting virtually across from me on my computer screen is the uh, the handsome John Hyman. John, Happy New Year. All right, well, you. let's you? Look, let's let's <laughs> not go crazy. There. Calm down. New Year's but, over. Yeah. But... <laughs> the new anyway. year's hangover the new the new year's hangover is continuing for you i see uh i'm drinking uh, orange year. I'm, you too. I'm doing yeah i'm i'm doing well man what's new what's new in your world well we we, we we're, we're hamming it up here a little bit what's new in my world you, you i know you already know this but thanks for the great straight person setup um i uh i announced uh i guess on january the third I, I went into work at, at where I work and turned in my notice because I've, I've uh, been offered and have desi decided to accept a position as a consultant with the uh, Labor Relations Institute. So I'm going to I'm going to depart from Publix in a, in a month or so. And uh, actually, I'm going to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all things, which I did not have on either my 2022 or my 2023 uh, bingo cards. But but it was the jackpot, apparently. So. Yeah, I've I've told I've told you this before, but um, many years ago, I litigated a very substantial wage and hour uh, collective action uh, in uh, state court in Tulsa, and it is I spent a lot of time there in depositions and hearings and whatnot. It is a lovely city. You're going to like it. Yeah, you know, uh, it's yeah. So, and again, you already know some of this detail, but for the just for the purposes of those that that would give a crap while they listen to the show. Um, the, the last two, three years in Florida, I mean, I came back to Florida from Atlanta, five year sojourn to Atlanta. I came back to Florida in March or April, I'm sorry, February, 2020 and COVID came to Florida in March of 2020. So we had that beautiful two year period. And then on top of that, then I had severe issues with my mom and dad and their, their health. And they, they've both, both passed in this last two years. And to be honest, when I left Atlanta, I had just come out of divorce and I was like, yeah, I'm going back to Florida where I love and it's going to be great. And it's then it turned into kind of a three years of, you know, a lot of caretaking and stress and it wasn't so fun. And I haven't really enjoyed it being here this this last time around. I mean, I still love the nice weather, but I just haven't really found, you know, what I was looking for in Florida. And so when when I started this discussion with with LRI uh the notion of trying a whole new place where i don't have any baggage of any sort you know dead parents ex-wives any and no hate for anybody just you know just memories right you know and, and not not so turning ones so the idea of going to tulsa and checking it out for a year and that's that's kind of the, the agreement i have is i'll come and give it a try for a year and if i don't like it i can you know I, they don't require you necessarily to be at the office every day anyway i can go live somewhere else so i'm excited uh a lot and i've been to new tulsa jobs, a couple times new new jobs are liberating i think yeah. having just having just moved my practice almost two years ago to uh wiccans rosa pans at my current firm uh and my last firm um it's uh uh it's invigorating to kind of nerve-wracking to give your notice particularly when you give it when you're giving it to people that you know and respect and like yeah and, but but invigorating at the same time that you're and liberating that you're going to this new uh, this new venture. So congratulations. I'm really excited for you. Thanks. I appreciate it. And, and even, uh, and I'll just share this and then we'll, we'll actually talk about HR stuff and legal stuff. Um, even, even here where I live in, in, in Florida, I live in a 55 plus community and, you know, it's great. It's cheap, you know, that kind of stuff. You have nice, but it, but it's just been like, I don't feel like I belong here. So I'm, I'm flipping the script on that hundred percent. I'm moving to downtown Tulsa, 
gonna live right on the river in, a, in about as hip and urban uh, apartment, high rise apartment complex as I could find with granite countertops and stainless steel, everything and Wi-Fi everywhere and networking throughout the building and a gym. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to kind of, you know, get back, take my social life back to you. There you go. Out keep me, um, keep me in the loop as to who's coming through Kane's ballroom. Maybe I'll hop on a plane and, and I'll definitely do that. Cause like, like you said, I I've heard it from others, including Phil, that that is a, like a must, must do experience in Tulsa with a, Kane, for Kane's a rock is, show. Uh, I, I had the pleasure. I don't remember who I saw there, but I know I took in a show there when I was spending my time in Tulsa a number of years ago. Um, it is one of the top, like concert venues in the country it's 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 just such, such a cool such a cool old we have a space here in cleveland called, called the beachland ballroom which is an old um like croatian or slovenian dance hall that's from like the 1920s that was 20 years ago 15 or 20 years ago converted into like a modern uh music venue and just those old kind of repurposed spaces uh are just so freaking cool to catch a show so Nice. Well, I'll, 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 I'll let you know. Um, and if you can't make it, I might still be going myself because I, I go. like taking a show every now and then. So, so um, we're going to, this is actually the, the first show of 2023. And while we don't have the convention of adopting like a season for our, uh, for our labor relatedly podcast, nor for our, for drive through HR, we're kind of an ongoing continuous venture. I guess this would be a, uh, Season two, because we had six shows or six or seven. I forget. I think it was six that we I did. Was, in two. I thought it was seven, but we'll, it might we'll be seven. It, yeah, because I think we threw that. We'll, we'll call it. A, we'll call it six and a half. Yeah. All right. Six point five. So this is so this is uh, the first show of 2023. And it really isn't there. There's going to be some labor relations discussion, but we're going to actually veer a little bit and talk about uh, something that's more probably HR slash labor law or employment law centric than it is labor relations. And that is the topic of the Federal Trade Commission and its announcement of, of about what a week and a half, two weeks ago, that they plan to regulate. Oh, not even like I think like a half like a half a week ago. It came out half last a Thursday. week ago. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Sorry, out, I'm, yeah, I have so too January, many things. January fifth, the FTC announced it. Um, okay. The Employment Law Internet officially broke the afternoon of, of January yeah. five when the FTC announced this. It's um. The federal government came out swinging in the early days of 2023. This is about as big of an employment law story as you're going to find. Yeah, because non 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 disclosure agreements, you know, and 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 non disclosure agreements for employers is one of the ways that they and non competes is one of the ways that they they kind of help regulate turnover and some other things. Yeah, in, in we want to be we, we we want to be precise with language because the what the FTC announced only applies to non-compete agreements so restrictive sorry, covenants it, you know that was, it's that it's, was I, my he, fault yeah you know, no no it's it's but uh, restrictive covenants so post-employment restrictive uh, during employment restrictive covenants restrictive restrictive covenants and employment coming to kind of three flavors there's non-disclosure agreements which relates to like confidential confidential information and trade secrets there's non-solicitation agreements which like don't don't hire our employees or don't hire or don't uh you know don't yeah, steal yeah. our customers don't po don't poach people and then there's non-compete agreements which are don't go work for a competitor of ours and this my under my read is that this applies to that third category yeah like straight non-compete don't go work for a competitor yeah my, that was my that was my misapplication of the wrong nomenclature there you're right it, it's not non uh, non-compete um 
Yeah. So, so, so the, the kind of the backstory, if you will, not the backstory, but there's been a lot of stuff that's come out about like the scope and scale of how these things are used by employers. And according to the, what I was joking with you in the pre-show, the, the sort of propaganda information that's come out in a lot of the news stories is that there's like 30 million people covered by these, these non-compete, uh, non-compete agreements. And that it, 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 what's the word that it, it, decreases or suppresses the pay because people aren't able to move into new new positions or negotiate against their current employers you know by going to competitors it, it decreases the the earnings in the US by about 300 billion dollars which is kind of a mind-blowing uh, kind of a mind-blowing number if it's anywhere even in re- remotely uh, you know true yeah, I don't I don't not, know but non-competes are a bit of a scourge and I've fully embracing my role as an advocate for management, I have been a critic of the overuse of non-compete agreements for a long time. I think too many employers use them in too many situations that are not appropriate. And the and they do it because the way this plays out is, you know, employee signs a non-compete agreement and then they want to go work for a competitor and the risk they're taking on is if they go work for a competitor, even if the non-compete is not enforceable, because to be enforceable and non-compete has to be reasonable, both as to time, like how long it runs for, the geographic space it covers, and then the employer has to have some like legitimate, reasonable interest is trying to protect through the non-compete. So even if even if a court is not going to enforce a non-compete, it still it still chills competition because there is a disparity in bargaining power and resources between the two sides. So John Doe employee is going to be afraid to go work for a competitor of their current company under a non-compete because they don't want to get sued because they don't want to have to spend the 50 grand plus it's going to be really conservative in that, in that budget. It's going to cost to defend that case, particularly when you're like a, you know, a low level employee, a salesperson without a lot of resources, whatever, Versus company that's got you know millions of dollars of revenue and had lawyers on retainer and it's no big deal for them. Well, it's always a big deal, but it's less of a big deal to go into court to seek an injunction to to shut you down and stop you from working. So even if they're not enforceable, they still chill mobility and employment because just it, em, employees don't want to take on the risk and the fees and the fees that go with the risk. And then oftentimes yeah. these these contracts also have like attorneys' fees provisions where it's you know, they, they require the losing party to pay fees. And, and so not only are you paying for your own lawyer employee who's goes to work trying to blow one of these things up, but if you lose, you might pay your former employer's attorney's fees as well, uh, which is an ugly situation to be in. So I, I understand why the FTC did what it did. And we can talk in a minute exactly what it did. Um, but, um, and it did it because these things are just way overused by too many employers in too many situations that they shouldn't be used in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I told you in the pre-show, I had dealt with this a couple of times. Uh, I mean, I was at, I was at an employer, um, from 1999 to 2004, I guess, in, a, in, a, in an HR role. And I, I had to sign a non-compete agreement when when they hired me it was just a standard part of the employment paperwork right they just said sign this non-compete agreement that would and essentially it prevented 
me or anyone else that worked for that company, I guess, who signed it uh, from going to work at any of their direct competitors um, or anybody that was in their business vertical for 48 months. And um, I asked the question, like what, not because I wanted to work somewhere else, but because I was trying to understand the scope. I remember asking one of our HR uh, legal people uh, in the HR department, what, like, what, what is, what is Anderson? Sorry, I didn't want to disclose the company. What is the, what is the company um, considered to be their business vertical? And they said anything that any wall in any home or building that has a window in it. That's no, walls, wall, walls are vertical. So yeah, exactly. No, but when any place you can put a window, that's our business. So, you know, okay, well, I guess that means any, any, any other window company in the, in, in the, in the United States. So um, I, I never had to exercise that, but cause I, I didn't try to go somewhere, but uh, someone who was a more technical person and a manager in the business that I knew um, was laid off by the company in a, in a, you know, in a reduction in force, he was laid off. He got paid severance and they let him know that um, they were, they planned to enforce his, um, non-compete as part of that and he had to he had to sign not only to sign to get the severance but he had to like sign to get a continuation of the nda right and that yeah. kept him from getting a couple of jobs right which maybe at his level it might make sense i didn't see any reason for it for me but it was just standard for the company at that time i i, I well let, let me a couple of observations number one i'm a big proponent in a more tiered approach to restrictive covenant agreements so you figure out what it is you're trying to protect and then narrowly tailor the agreement to that interest. So for most employees who have access, employees that have access to confidential information or trade secrets, um, you know, maybe an NDA and non-disclosure agreement is all you need. Mm-hmm. For employees that are customer facing, they actually have customer contact and a non-solicit probably makes sense. For your higher level employees that have, you know, access to highly sensitive information that can really, you know, do damage to you by going to work for a competitor, maybe there a a more broad-based non-competition agreement makes sense in that narrow set of circumstances. But I'm also a fan, and I see this all the time, where, so I'll represent an executive who is laid off or they decide to go in a different direction, is let go from their position or whatever, and they get a severance agreement that will pay them like six months of severance, but then has a two, but then has like a two-year non-compete tacked onto it, or they're going to mm-hmm. say, and we're going to enforce your two-year non-compete. There should be some level of parallelism, I think, between the severance benefit and the amount of time you're asking someone to sit on the sidelines in most cases, I think. Um, and I've even seen non-compete agreements that will, that will say something like, um, you know, if you can, show to us through reasonable diligence, you've been unable to secure employment after 30 days or 60 days or 90 days after the end of your employment, um, we will pay you X percent of your salary as of the termination date through the end of the non-compete, if the non-compete's preventing you from finding work. So, you know, we'll Mm -hmm. pay you two thirds of your salary, you know, for the duration of your non-compete, if you can show that the non-compete's preventing you from getting work. And- when courts look at these things, and I do want to get to what the FTC actually is trying to do, yeah, but, yeah. When, but but when courts look at these things, that there is, people always ask me, I just had a call the other day with a, excuse me, with a potential client who um, is looking to move jobs and, you know, is, is this not compete enforceable? And the answer is, I, you know, I can look at it and say, I don't think it is. I think it's overbroad. I think we have arguments we can make, but at the end of the day, 
you have, you know, a, a man or a woman in a black robe sitting up on a bench in a courthouse somewhere that's going to make that decision. And, you know, I practice primarily in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, Cleveland, where we have 35 different common police judges and another dozen federal court judges, if you happen to be in federal court. Mm-hmm. And so that's 40, you know, nearly 50 different views on non-compete agreements. And and it, to predict how a case is going to turn out, I mean, you have no idea. And they often turn on really, and they, they turn on the equities, kind of what's fair. And, you know, did someone leave a business on good terms? They, did they, you know, copy documents or emails on the way out the door? You know, did, or how do the equities play out has a lot to do with it. So um, there are, these things are really, really hard to predict. So I applaud the FTC trying to give a little bit of certainty. I think they went way overboard in what they did. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Why don't you Why don't you set us up for what the FTC, FTC has said they're going to try to do, and then let's talk about whether that is feasible or not. Yeah. So the FTC issued last Thursday the 5th a notice of proposed rulemaking, um, which they are uh, holding for comments for 60 days. If this regulation, and, and the regulation is a key, it, this is not a law, it's a, a regulation implemented by a federal agency. If it takes effect, it would, number one, provide that non-compete clauses are an unfair method of competition and as a result, ban employers from entering non-compete clauses with their workers, all workers, including independent contractors, um, and then secondly, it would require employers to rescind existing non-compete clauses with workers and actively inform them uh, that the contracts are no longer in effect. Um, over the 60-day comment period, the FTC has specifically asked for comments on a couple of key issues, such as whether uh, there should be a carve-out for senior executives um, or they should be subject to like a rebuttable presumption other than just an outright ban on the non-compete itself. And then whether the rule, if it takes effect, should treat high and low wage workers the same, um, the same or differently. That's kind of where we are. Um, I have severe doubts that this will ever take effect, certainly in its current form, banning all non-competes. Uh, I will eat my hat if this actually <laughs> takes effect. There will a business friendly group pick your pick your poison um i would lay odds on the national federation of independent businesses as one likely candidate here we'll go into a business friendly a business friendly federal court like the fifth circuit which decided the osha vaccine mandate um last year um and will um try to get this thing thrown out as a gross overreach of regulatory authority which i think it is so yeah and, and, and the other thing there that, we, that is probably important to note is that federal rulemaking, rulemaking, I don't know why I say rulemaking, um, is, a, is a long and laborious process, right? So, so even, even if this is all accomplished, we won't see this probably in this year. It'll be sometime next year before they roll it out. And then as soon as they roll it out or possibly even before, that's when the legal challenges will start, right? Well, they could start now. I think we might, we might, I think we'll see the legal challenges before this takes effect to issue an, to issue a, an injunction to stop it from ever going into effect. Okay. Um, it becomes a lot easier. I mean, if this takes effect and then 
it voids all non-compete clauses and then it, it gets messier if you're voiding contracts and going to get an injunction to unvoid something that already been voided. I think I think we're going to see the legal challenges before the end of before the close of the 60 day comment period. That would okay. be my guess. I was trying to remember, and I don't know if you do, I was trying to remember uh, another situation where the, there was something like this was the persuader rules of a few years ago. Yep. And those were injuncted. But when did when did that process get injuncted? I don't I don't remember. The, yeah, I mean, I don't the, OSHA, the OSHA vaccine mandate took effect. That that was enjoined before it ever took effect. So um yeah, I think I, I you have, I mean, you have a couple things going against the FTC here. Number one is we do have at least one federal circuit, that being the Fifth Circuit, that has already in recent history shown to be very skeptical towards um, broad sweeping agency regulations like this, number one. Number two, I think you have a Supreme Court that is also very skeptical of uh, federal agencies acting like a legislative body, which is which is which is what this looks like. And look, I mean, there are state legislatures all over the country that are taking action against non-compete agreements. There are states mm-hmm. that are setting wage thresholds. You know, you can't you can't have an employee sign a non-compete unless they make X number of dollars a year in salary or in wages. We've had legislatures that have drawn distinctions between like exempt and non-exempt employees. Um, legislatures on the state level are acting. Contracts are a matter of state law, not federal law. I think there are separation of powers issues here. I think there are um, I think there are states' rights issues here. I think there is um uh freedom of contract issues here to the extent you have a, a right to form a contract um i think those issues exist as well so there are there are a lot of legal hurdles that this rule has to overcome before it takes effect and i i there's going to be several hurdles too many i think yeah so so given that that it's that this is a big swing by the ftc but it's unlikely to re- reach the reach the fences. I guess it'll it'll probably die at the warning track or a few feet short of a home run. I guess it's going to be a dri- it's going to be a dribbler to shortstop. Yeah, <laughs> right behind the right behind the mound. Um, let Let's go back because you you mentioned a few things as we as we kind of wandered through the through the trail of talking about this from a legal perspective about using these things. You know, you use the word judicious. So let's let's talk about it from a both from a legal and a little bit of a, a practitioner perspective. What 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 are what are the what are the best ways to use these things? I mean, if you're a technology company, you obviously you obviously want to protect your your IP. If you're a if you're a manager, you want or a, you want you don't want your managers or salespeople walking away with your client lists and contacts, even though they go with them in their head, right? So I, how do I, you I put these too, things in I, play? I think, I think too many companies and too many lawyers that advise companies, I think just say, we're going to have a one size fits all approach here. We're going to have everybody sign the same same agreement and we'll work it out in court after the fact if we have to. And that's made possible in part by the fact that most states um, do what they call blue pencil these agreements. So if you sue on an overly broad non-compete agreement, um, a court doesn't have to throw the agreement out. A court has the option to, in most states, uh, mine, Ohio being one of them, has the option to rewrite or blue pencil the agreement to make it reasonable. 
So if I have an employee sign a 10-year non-compete agreement saying I'm not going to work for a competitor for 10 years, that's going to be overbroad in almost all but the most extreme cases. But a court looking at that doesn't have to throw the agreement out. They can just say, well, we think two years is reasonable. So we're going to take our pencil, we're going to cross out 10, write in two, and that's what you're bound by. Mm -hmm. So I think because of that, I think most employers and lawyers that advise employers have this kind of one-size-fits-all approach to say, everybody signed the same agreement, and there is no thought whatsoever put into what are you actually trying to accomplish with this agreement, right? What what are you trying to protect? What interest are you trying to protect here? Do you want, are you concerned about access to confidential information? Then you should use an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, a confidentiality agreement. Are you concerned about someone going to a competitor and like lifting out a department of your employees or poaching a whole bunch of employees or or poaching customers uh, because they're customer facing? Then you need a, like a non-solicit agreement, like don't, don't, don't divert our business to another company. Um, are you worried about them, you know, taking, you know, high level strategies um, and other really going to, you know, going from Coke to Pepsi and really doing damage by going to work for a competitor? Then, then, you, then you need a non-compete. And maybe, maybe it's just a couple of competitors and not all the competitors. Maybe you can schedule in the agreement itself the competitors that you're trying to prevent someone to working from working for and just try, instead of just trying to carve them out of an industry. I mean, if someone's worked in an industry for their entire life, just because they come to work for you and sign a piece of paper, should that prevent them from continuing that in that industry when they leave you? Um, so there's a, I just think we need to be more thoughtful in how we're drafting these agreements and what we're asking our employees to sign rather than just having everybody sign the most broad agreement as possible and trying to work kind of just trying to sort it out on the back ends. Gotcha. Two more quick questions. Um, if you're an employer and you're interviewing a candidate, any candidate, should you be asking about these things? Yes. 30 million people walking around. With yes. Yeah. You should. Cause I, I, I bet a lot of employers, I, I rarely, if ever have received, have that been asked that question, I would say. Um, I, I, I'm always advising clients to ask that question. You want to know because you don't want to hire you don't want to hire someone, go through the investment of the hiring process, the onboarding, getting someone into your place of business, and then get and find out a week later that there's a restraining order in place and they can't work for you. And you got to start the hiring process all over again, or kind of put that position on on hold for a week, two weeks, a month till so, till the litigation sorts itself yeah. out before that person can start working. So and, and if, if you so so you want to know. And then you can make you can make a reasoned decision as an employer of the risk you want to take at that point. You can have your legal counsel as the hiring employer look at the non-compete and say, yeah, we think this is valid. No, we think this is not valid. You want to make sure you're advising candidates like don't bring anything with you. We don't want your former employer's information. Um, we don't want their right. customer lists. We don't want their pricing lists. We don't want uh, we don't want anything. You know, we don't want emails, company. We don't want any of that stuff. It stays at the old company. Please, 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 please don't bring it here because that's the quickest way to convert a defensible legal hiring into a colossal pain in the ass in litigation. <laughs> And and if you're a uh, if you're a candidate uh, going trying to get a job at a competitor of a former employer and you have one of these things that you've signed, should you be disclosing that? Yes. Yeah. yeah are they obligated? Are you obligated to? 
you're you're not, I'm not saying you should hide it, but like the, do the do the contracts themselves require that? Some do. Yeah, some do. Some contracts, um, the ones I draft require yeah. disclosure, right? You you must you must advise a potential employer that you are bound by this non-compete agreement. Yeah. And and you must tell us the the and you must tell us the identity of the employers that you're interviewing with or you're accepting employment with. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, because we we had a I had a, I worked at another at a different employer than one I mentioned previously. Um, and I didn't I, this was a corporate hire. They hired a person to be like a general manager of the division. And he was walking around with one of these things in his pocket and he didn't tell anybody till after he started the job. And the other company wrote and said, um, sorry, that guy has a non-compete and you can't employ him in that in that position. And so my company had to um, a do what you said, which is get their lawyers to look at it and start trying to figure out if they wanted to fight for him or not. But in the meantime, they were, they were stopped from letting him work in that capacity that they'd hired him for. And they wound up moving him into like a plant manager role or something like that at the plant that I worked at, which he was woefully unqualified to do, but they, they needed to do something with him because he was on payroll and they weren't ready to let him go yet until they figured out, you know, so wound up with a bad fit for the guy, for our, our location. And, and then at the end of it all, they had to let him go anyway, because the, the, the agreement turned out to be enforceable. And it seemed to me, he should have disclosed that in the first place, cost us a bunch of money through bad faith, trying to take a job. He knew he probably couldn't get anyway. So I don't know. yeah, there it's certainly, I mean, at that point when an employee has one of these, a candidate has one of these and they're not giving it to you. And then you, the first time you find out about it is when you get the cease and desist letter in the mail from their former employer's legal counsel. Um, it certainly, it, it, it calls into question the employee's honesty um, and it creates a real trust issue, which is a problem, which is why I think employees should just be upfront. Are there situations where you sign one of these, you work for a company for 15 years, you sign one of these on day one of employment and it goes in a drawer and you forget about it? I mean, sure. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, and if, if an employer is doing its job correctly as part of the, uh, the, the outboarding process, um, they should be reminding you of your restrictive covenant agreements. They should, you know, you should at a minimum um, be giving a departing employee who is bound by one of these one of these agreements that you intend to enforce or think you might intend to enforce. You give them a copy of that agreement on their way out the door and say, by the way, don't forget you signed this uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever, when you started here. And um, be mindful of this agreement that you sign when you're out looking for work. Yeah, I mean, um, that's really in the employer's yeah. own self-interest and their yep. best interest as well, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, I, unless, that, that's... In, unless you unless you like paying lawyers, which look, I, I'm I'm all for that. Yeah. But that's most companies don't like paying legal fees. So, yeah, yeah. OK, well, so that's the the unlikely to be implemented FTC rule. Hopefully it won't. We won't see it, but there may be some better ways to manage the uh, these types of agreements. And hopefully we've shared a few ideas about things that might help you if you're if you're looking at these or trying to implement them. Um, since the show is uh, called Labor Relatedly, let's pivot and do a few uh, kind of bits and bites pieces of things that I've we've talked about before, but, you know, remain current and topical. And one of them, which is quasi-labor related is the FAST Act out in California, another injunction of an unpopular uh, piece of legislation that essentially kind of creates a, a council that will run the fast food industry in the state of California and set wages and do a bunch of other things that look suspiciously union-like. And certainly this, pro this, this entire law was heavily uh, promoted and driven by SEIU and others. So um, the 
the restaurant industry, I guess the state of California and the restaurant industry in general has been trying to figure out ways to get that law from taking going into effect uh, through ballot initiatives. And they just also got an injunction, I guess. You want to talk about that for a minute? Uh, yes. I mean, there there is an effort to get a I mean, it's it's a bit of a mess, right? So yeah. there's been injunctions against the law. There's been this ballot initiative. There's talks of injunctions against the ballot initiative because of claims from the from the uh, the labor unions that are behind the FAST Act that the that the signatures to to get the uh, the the uh, law on the ballot are fraudulent and un, they're unverified and they're fraudulent signatures. It is uh, un, unsurprisingly this has been just a, a colossal uh, a colossal mess in California. Um, my understanding that there is um, a hearing coming up, I think the back end of this week to decide whether um, there will be, right now there's just a, there's a temporary restraining order in place against the FAST Act. And I guess there will be a hearing at the back end of this week to decide whether to, um, whether to grant a preliminary injunction pending further litigation. And so I guess, you know, I guess stay tuned. And I guess it could also all be undone by this ballot initiative if that makes it onto the ballot. The Secretary of State, I think, in California is currently deciding what to do with this uh, petition for this referendum and trying to verify signatures as, as quickly as it can so it can get on the ballot for the for the next election cycle. But it is it is an absolute um uh it's it's an absolute mess with, I mean, I think probably good intentions like raising the work standards of fast food workers. But um, the execution has been, I think, sloppy. And, and so I guess it's stay tuned on whether the FAST Act uh, 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 becomes law fastly. I'm just trying to think of a good pun to go with rapidly, fast, rapidly. on the spot. Yeah, fast rapidly. Act, rapidly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it, this also speaks a little bit to the fact that trying to, trying to do, uh, I guess, union type collective bargaining through the legislative and, uh, and, uh, ballot process is is it just as if not more cumbersome just as cumbersome as the, the traditional union organizing process is you know <laughs> it's not there there are it's fraught with peril at every turn and people are going to fight you it's seemingly every step of the way over these kinds of things and so it's uh yeah like you said stay tuned but it's definitely something to keep an eye on because if california does manage to get it implemented then look for it in new york and other places in the not too distant future and then it'll become a mess so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, staying with the restaurant industry, but going to the other coast, uh, NLRB in Buffalo uh, issued a, a finding that one of the pr principal organizers, actually a, a Rhodes Scholar by the name yeah, of- Yeah, I saw that when I was yeah, researching Bresac, this. Yeah, she, she specifically joined, she went to work for SEIU and then specifically applied at Starbucks as a SALT a covert right. salt in order to start the, the 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 Starbucks Workers Union organizing campaign in Buffalo. That was her. Do we know? I mean, I, do, do we know? Do, do we know what? Um, do we know what the thesis was? The th was the was their Rhodes Scholar? Do Rhodes Scholars write thesis papers? Was was their thesis on like I I like didn't, like, I, like, like like the under like the trampling of the American workers' rights or something? It, it, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure she's a true socialist, like literally by self def self definement. She's a socialist. Uh, you know, I'm not calling names. I think that's how she defines herself and her political and, and, and financial or whatever you want to say, economic views as a socialist. And, and she's very interested in, in organizing. 
And um, she was effectively, I guess, constructively discharged, at least according to her story, by Starbucks when they started changing her schedule um, and made it so that what her work schedule and what they wanted were incompatible, made it so that she had to leave because they wouldn't honor the the availability that she gave to them, and they forced oh, well, her well, out. Well, so so this is this is according to this is according to their Wikipedia page. Okay. Uh, Brissack started her career in 2016 working as a teacher advisor for the Sunflower Freedom Project, and in 2017 working part-time in a campaign with the United Auto Workers to unionize a Nissan factory in Canton, Mississippi. Nissan was criticized for one of the nastiest union-busting efforts in history. Yeah. The union push was unsuccessful. She also worked to help defend Jackson Women's Health Organization. Uh, she says her work is inspired by Eugene Debs, so I think the socialist uh, label is probably one that she would proudly um, embrace. And then in 2018, one of her papers, Organizing Unions as Social Policy, was published in the Global Encyclopedia of Public Policy and Public Administration. So I guess, I guess if you hire, I, mean, I guess if you hire a socialist road scholar at Starbucks, maybe you get what you deserve, but I'm not sure <laughs> searching for the, searching for the thesis papers of job applicants is high on the list of, of recruiters. So, yeah. So on, on the, each barista, what, what was your thesis? Yeah. So my, anyway, although, although it looks like she, it, before organizing Starbucks in Buffalo, so it says in 2019, she relocated to Buffalo, um, to start a union a union organizing campaign at Spot Coffee, a local coffee shop that was right. ultimately unsuccessful. So, I mean, you would think maybe, I mean, Buffalo's a, a big city, but not that big. Right. That, that, may, that may, this person, I mean, does Starbucks, should Starbucks have known the, and not that you, not that you can, not that I mean, you, you can find a legal reason not to hire her, but um, and you can't hire her just because she's a, you can't refuse to hire her just because she's a union supporter, but like should start, like where, where's Starbucks diligence in hiring this person? Not sure. Um, maybe they just wanted to have a Rhodes Scholar behind the bar. I don't know. Um, anyway, so she, she was, she was forced out of Starbucks, allegedly, according to her, her uh, ULP and the regional, um, regional director in Buffalo, has ruled uh, in agreement with her saying that, you know, she's, she was ter terminated improperly and in retaliatory manner. And that, and unless uh, Starbucks reaches a settlement with the NLRB and Jazz Presack, they plan to issue a, uh, a, a charge uh, on behalf of Jennifer Bruzzo, the general counsel. So this has been happening a lot. Starbucks has been firing these people for various and sundry reasons, none of which ever mentioned unions, but there's been like 60 or 70 of these. You had the Memphis 7 that was fired really rather infamously and then re and just in the last couple of months got reinstated. There are others that are you know are in various states pending like jazz what what what's the what's the end game for starbucks here are they trying to they, i mean they're not the firing part i we know what we're trying to we know what they're trying to do there they're trying to get people out that they're they causing them problems and they're willing to take some pain to do that but what what's the nlrb's end game and what what is what should starbucks expect from jazz and others like this in terms of the labor law perspective john i think you're i think you're probably going to see you're probably going to see a re i think you're going to see her back at that Starbucks. I think you'll see a reinstatement order putting her back at work and Starbucks might yeah. have to take her back. I mean, I think it's probably what the NLRB's, I think it's probably what the NLRB's end game here is. Starbucks might be stuck with the, the you know, union organizer alpha working back at one of their stores. 
Yeah. Which is a hard pill to swallow if to take to take her to take back somebody in that it, case for the from it, an re it really is. And you know, I, I mentioned this before we before we started recording, but all of this made me think about this uh, an article I read in Harvard Business Review um, back end of last week called "How Businesses Should and Shouldn't Respond to Union Organizing." And you and I have talked about this on the show before that I think a lot of these kind of old school nineteen eighties nineteen nineties anti-union tactics that Starbucks and Amazon and Trader Joe's and Chipotle and others are falling back on are really serving as, I think, proof of concept for the organizers. Like we told you, you need a union, you know, look, the, 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 your employer's firing all the union organizers. This, this is why you need a union. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, um, you know, and so the, I think what this article, the, the point that this article, uh, it's written by Roy Behat and Thomas Cochin. I don't know who they are, but I mean, the, the, the Cochin's point a they, professor at Syracuse. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the point, the point they make is that we employers facing union organizing in 2022, 2023 and beyond really need to take a much a much softer approach with how they're how they're opposing the union. You know, you should be you know reaffirming employees' right to organize. You should be um, you know focus on your culture and and you know you know being authentic in your concerns for what's going on in the workplace and trying to work with you know trying to work with you know work with employees as opposed to working against them and then. You know, don't you know? Don't fire the organizers. They make in big bold letters, because again, I think that really just I I I I really think that creates this us against them mentality, which is which plays right into the organizers' hands. Yeah. Um. So stay tuned on that as well, because more to come. It won't be decided for a while, I'm sure. Um. And lastly, since we're we talked more about uh, NDA or about uh, non competes than I thought we would. Um, the last thing was uh, Microsoft and Activision. They're a, a business they acquired a while ago. Uh, Microsoft agreed to what's called a neutrality agreement for a union at their Activision unit. Um, and, and a neutrality agreement simply says, as an employer, we won't take a position on whether or not our employees should belong to a union. We'll, we'll remain neutral. Just like, just basically it's named after what it is. We will not take a position positively or negatively on unions. We treat it as the employee's choice. And if you decide to have a union, then we'll abide by that decision. And, and so they did that. Um, Activision employees uh, voted overwhelmingly in favor of a union. And so now Microsoft as a technology company is one of the first ones to have a, a union basically come in voluntarily without a fight. Um, there, there were some there were some driving reasons behind that in that the Activision acquisition has, is being looked at and scrutinized for antitrust reasons by, I guess, the SEC or the FTC. or maybe FTC both. and maybe, FTC. Maybe, 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 union, maybe union busting doesn't look so great when you're being accused of uh, being anti-competitive in the first place, so especially in under in the the in a Biden administration, right? right? Yeah, right, right. So, so there there was a strategic thought, and these and, and I was joking with you when we talked about this one in the in the in the before we started recording. This isn't the kind of stuff you're normally thinking about as an HR practitioner or even a labor lawyer. You're not usually saying, "Okay, what's the what's the FTC going to say about this?" From them, <laughs> right? So, the, so the, this old school discussion and show topic that we keep coming back to labor relations 
has all kinds of re really interesting and highly fraught implications that that we don't think about um, on a daily basis in the HR or even the employment law world. I think, and it, and it just goes to show that it's not dead, even if uh, even if it's uh, taking many new forms and shapes in in the in the twenty first century. Yeah, you know, and a lot of you know a lot of employers might look at a neutral take take the antitrust implication out of it a lot of employers might look at a neutrality agreement and say well why would we want to lay down and just not take an opinion and let the union organize if they want to organize um, or at least let employees vote to organize if they want to vote to organize right um free of our you know free of our opinion and you know maybe you know and and rather than focusing your efforts maybe on a battle you don't think you can win you focus your efforts on bargaining the best first contract or bargaining to an impasse and not having a first contract that you can find or you can get but maybe buy yourself a little bit of goodwill with the employees in the process so it's 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 definitely if you take even if you take the antitrust implications out of it it's still i think an interesting you know an interesting strategy as again we talk about the I'm drawn back to this you know, this kind of kinder, gentler approach to, to union busting. It's just, it's, it's, if there can be a kinder, gentler approach to union busting, it's just, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting approach that I think um, uh, it's it, something that I think those of us that advise employers through this process should, I think, keep available in our quiver of, uh, our quiver of tools when a company gets organized. It, uh, it brings to mind what might make it a good wrap up for the show today brings to mind the uh, campaign that Volkswagen went through with the UAW back in like 2016. Volkswagen agreed to a neutrality agreement at their Chattanooga, Tennessee site with the UAW and, and um, didn't fight hard against the union internally. However, the business community in Tennessee and a lot of the you know National Right to Work Foundation and many others took an active role in a almost like a grassroots campaign. And somehow, despite a, a, despite a German-owned company that agreed to a neutrality agreement in the United States, the UAW has still managed not to win that election because of the, of the publicity and um, questions that were raised by groups external to the process, really. Um, right on. Fight, just, fight, fight the power. Right on. It boggles the mind that the UAW could blow that one, but oh, may, maybe not their fault because they were facing a lot of different things. But anyway, so neutrality agreements, rare, but interesting. Um, so that's our first show of uh, 2023. It was a broad and uh, deep discussion of some stuff that we won't probably touch on again for a while. But I, uh, I enjoyed it and we'll do another one in a couple of weeks, hopefully. And in the meantime, I hope that you have the rest of a, the rest of a great January, John. Yeah, you too. Congrats again on the job. I am super excited for you. Thanks. All I got to do now is put my house up for sale, clean it, get it ready, move everything, go to start a new job. It's just, you know, it's easy stuff from here on yeah, out, right? Piece, <laughs> of, piece of cake. Piece of yeah. cake. Anyway, all right. Talk to you again a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and end the uh, end the recording. And I think I'm going to end the recording. Come on. There it is.